I was at High V last night, uh, 8.30 or so, getting some Crisco so that my daughter Brianna could make some chocolate chip cookies. While I was there, the cashier saw me checking out and with my black Got Church t-shirt on. To which he said, as he swiped the can of Crisco across the scanner, he said, so you must be a pastor. To which I said and responded as I got my wallet out, I am, but I'm first a Christian. That's what makes me part of the church. He said, oh, would you work there, huh? I said, well, I work at a, I work with people who are the church, but I don't work at a church building. It's amazing the amount of assumptions people make about the word church, isn't it? And I trust that you are adjusting your thinking as well as we learn more and more about what it means to, uh, and I use bad English here, to got church. To be the church, to understand what the word actually means. And you know what? I'm not at church this morning. I'm looking at the church this morning. Amen? And I just want to make sure we're all on the same page, which hopefully is God's page. When we talk about church, we're talking about the people of God who gather in His name in the power of His Spirit. And whether it's this building that this church chooses to meet in, or maybe a park, or the woods, or a forest, or an ocean, or a school, or a home, the building does not define who we are. Amen. We're a church because we are a called out people by His name. As God gives you opportunity, I trust that you will, especially during this series, Shed light upon what this word means in the most biblical fashion to your neighbors and your your friends. Let them see you are a part of the church, the called out ones. You're a part of a family of, of whom the head is Jesus Christ. Amen. That is the name of our series we've been working through this fall. It's called Got Church, and we are actually basing that series in the book of 1 Timothy. So take your Bibles and find that portion in the New Testament, would you? 1 Timothy chapter 3, accenting our study is the workbook called Got Church, and I trust that you have one. If you don't, please be sure to pick one up. They're at the Welcome Center. They'll just be a companion study to this text. Many of our lighthouses are using them. I think more of our members, however, are using them in their personal time. The questions and some of the reflections that are in there, lighthouse leaders use them as they see best. But it's a good companion study guide to maybe open the scriptures up even more to us on a day-by-day basis. And then we kind of accent that as well by teaching through this book on Sundays when we gather. We are up to chapter 3, about verse 14. And our topic today is the church's conduct. And we draw that from the key word in these last three verses of chapter 3. In fact, I'm going to ask you to take your pen, lipstick, mascara, pencil, bloody finger, or something... And just kind of circle the word conduct, if you would. It's right there in the middle of verse 15. It seems to be a real centerpiece of these verses, uh, at least from a topical aspect. He's talking about how are we to conduct ourselves. What's a church member? And when I say that, don't think institutional role. Think Christian. When we say someone's a church member, what we most biblically mean is, do you belong to Christ? Are you with me? So start thinking that way. When we say, Paul says here, how does a, how does a member of God's house really act? Well, he's going to explain that um, in this whole letter, but especially in these 
small, simple verses. And I want to kind of teach you this today and bring some insight about these wonderful three verses that give us a really good template for church behavior, for relating in the family. Let's begin in verse 14, shall we? By the way, as I teach the text, at some point I'll take some time for some questions from the audience or maybe some comments that are spirit-led and and empowered by a spirit, of course. And if that may be you, if you have a question, there will be a time we'll ask those. I just want to give you a heads up so you're not caught off guard. I know it sometimes takes several seconds to process a question, and then sometimes I close out the question and answer time. And I've had three or four folks at the first service say, I was just about to ask, and you closed it down. So I'm giving you a heads up. If you have a question, be sure to keep it maybe in your notes section of the worship folder, and then we can have a chance in a few minutes to discuss it. Let's begin in verse 14, shall we? 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, here's Paul's desire that he visit Timothy in his work there at Ephesus, or as we've called it, uh, the Vegas of that culture. He says, I, I'm writing you these instructions. In other words, he's referring here, I think, to the whole of his letter. Now, there are some who think the words, these instructions, might just apply to chapter 3, or maybe even just to the surrounding verses. But I'd remind you, there were no chapter or verse divisions when the Bible was written. Those were man-made, and they're helpful, and there's nothing wrong with them. But I tend to think the lack of any kind of definite article in front of the words of these instructions means, too, that he's referring here to his whole letter. Now, he's writing it to a single individual, by the way. Look what he says. I am writing you... These instructions, do you see that? So he's writing Timothy this letter, but look what this letter is to do. Let's keep reading. So that if I am delayed, you will know how, what's the next word? People. So the letter has a singular uh, address, shall we say, but it has a plural impact. In other words, Paul is saying, Timothy, I'm writing you this letter, these instructions, so that the people in general who belong to God's house, look what the verse says, They'll know how to conduct themselves. The word there, conduct, means to, to model or pattern. Paul says, I'm writing this letter so that you will know how the, the general church population, those who are members of God's house, will know how to live, to, to pattern their lives after. And it says here in the next comment, it says we're, we're in God's household. Now notice something here. This is not an institutional word. Listen very carefully to me. This is not an institutional word. This is a relational word. When it says God's household, he's not talking about a building or a structure. In fact, did you know that no actual church building existed till the time of Constantine? Up until the 3rd or 4th century, there was no actual physical church structure, at least of the New Testament church. There were obviously temples. But when Jesus died and rose again, the temple was changed the temple was different then. We now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? So he's speaking here not of a, a physical structure, but of a family, of a, of a people. And he's saying, Timothy, I want you to relay these instructions so that people will know how to act around each other. Are you with me? That's the same instruction to us today. He's written this letter so that we will know how to, and I'll use this vernacular here, get along with each other. He's not speaking here about rules for the church building. No running, you know, all these things. He's talking about how we behave when we get together, whether it's in someone's home, in a local gathering, in a school, in the park. When the church gathers, here's how we're to act. That's what he means here. And he says about this household of God. 
Look what he says in these next few phrases. It's the church of the living God. Do you see that? If you took that phrase and you were to see it in the original language, it would be ordered like this. It would say, uh, the living God's church. Now listen very carefully first, the first family. Sometimes in the Greek language, the emphasis is indicated to us by the order of words. And I tend to think this phrase, with the word living being actually the first word, it says living God's church. Paul's drawing a great distinction to the dead religions that were all over Ephesus. I mean, there were, there were idols and temples, and the most famous was the Temple of Diana there in Ephesus to the Greek goddess of sexuality. And he's saying, listen, when you get together as a family, even though you don't have a temple structure like the pagan religions, you are a family you're a, you're a member of God's household, and by the way, that's the living God's church. It was a direct attack against all the dead religions surrounding Timothy and the church at Ephesus. Aren't you glad that you are a member of a spiritual family who serves a living God? Amen? When we gather as a church, we're not gathering to memorialize a dead person. Hallelujah. We're not gathering to hopefully convince a piece of wood. We are gathering to celebrate a risen Lord, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's different. That's distinct. That's set apart. No wonder God would call us his holy people. So Paul says, Timothy, God's household is the living God's church. And then he says it's also the pillar and foundation of the truth. Interesting phrase, isn't it? If I were to ask any one of you, who's the pillar of truth? Your first answer might be God. You'd probably say it in some real church way, wouldn't you? It'd sound real religious. Now, I understand what you mean by that. And there are scriptures that teach that, that we take our stand on the gospel, that we do have a firm foundation. He is the chief cornerstone of that foundation. So I'm not denying that. But in this biblical text, listen very carefully, to stay true to this text, this text says the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. That's what it says, doesn't it? What does that mean? Well, let's just kind of understand the culture and the history, and let's make some sense of this phrase, because it's an awesome phrase. In that city of Ephesus, there obviously was this prime temple, uh, to Diana, the goddess of sexuality. And it was a pervasive uh, uh, pagan culture that Timothy was, was kind of positioned in. And I think when Paul wrote that the church people, those who were called out by God's name, were pillars of the truth, when they heard that word, they probably thought immediately of this temple of Diana and the 127 pillars that upheld the roof of this structure that really represented pagan uh, wickedness. Their mind thought about all those pillars that were large. They were studded with gold and different types of jewels. Uh, history says that most every pillar was given by a king from somewhere and brought in, and they were built in honor of this king. The kings funded it. They kind of provided the means for it. And so all around this massive structure were these pillars that represented people who said, hey, uh, we buy into this. Live and let live. We actually uphold something different, church. We are pillars who uphold and support the truth of God. And so when people look at church, watch this, when they look at you, whether individually or collectively, 
They should see a body of people or a singular life upholding the truth of Christ, the truth of God. Not a worldly philosophy, not a pagan type of thinking, but instead the truth of God. That's what we support. And the truth be known, you are pillars of that. In fact, let me be even more blatant with this. God is counting on the church to support and uphold the truth. He's counting on you. He's counting on every one of us to live a life that says, This we believe. What is it that we believe? What truth are we supporting? What kind of truth are we pillars of? He explains it next in verse 16. I think here he actually goes to this truth of which we, of we're the pillars, so to speak. He says, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Here mystery refers to a, a truth that at some point was hidden, but then revealed. Like, for instance, if I said to you, have you read a mystery? I asked Beth, have you read a mystery? She might say, yes, that would mean that she never understood it. It would just mean that at some point in this book she read, certain things were hidden, revealed, and then they made sense. At some points, the plot kind of unfolded. The word mystery in the Bible refers to things that at some point were hidden, um, kind of uh, unable to be detected, but then at a certain point became revealed. And the crucial person that unfolds the mystery of God is Jesus Christ. It's what the prophets of old were looking forward to. It's what we look back to. Jesus Christ is the central mystery-solving person. Here it's called the mystery of godliness. And look what it says in the last few verses, this last verse of chapter 3. Here's the truth, and it is a person, by the way, which rings of John 14, 6, doesn't it? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Look at the truth here about Jesus. He appeared in the body. And by the way, that's a, a sting against Gnosticism. It was a, a, a powerful strain of, of heresy that was infecting the church here at Ephesus. Part of Gnosticism was that material, real things just probably weren't as, as real as you think. They're, they're somewhat false, an illusion. It's more about a secret form of knowledge you have to attain, and, and that can't be seen. And, and Paul says, listen, Jesus Christ is truth, and by the way, he had a body. He was real. It's a, it's, a, it's a gut blow to Gnosticism. So he appeared in the body. He was vindicated by the Spirit, I think speaking there, of Christ's baptism. He was seen by angels. Probably they're referencing the wilderness temptations when at the very end of those 40 days, angels came and ministered, fed Jesus Christ. He was preached among the nations, the known world of that time where Christ walked and ministered. All kinds of uh, people and different cultures heard him. He was believed on in the world, at least for sure. We know of 12 that did, amen? They heard him say, follow me, and they did. And then multitudes who heard and listened and responded were healed and believed and forgiven of their sins. He was believed on in the world and was taken up in glory, speaking of his ascension. Here's the life of Christ in a nutshell. That's the truth that's beyond question. That's the truth, the confession that's great among us. That's what we uphold, the life of a Jesus Christ. Let me take a minute here to encourage you on an aspect, First Family. One of the sure ways you can notice a false religion or a false teacher is creeping in is if they start messing with the life of Jesus. If you're curious what someone believes, just talk about Jesus. 
It's there you can spot differences quicker than anywhere. Folks are going to say, yeah, I believe in God. Oh, I believe the Bible. But you just start talking about Jesus as quick as you can, and you'll spot doctrinal differences quickly. And I'm going to tell you something. That's why Paul here was quick to say, listen, the truth we uphold, the central thing we've got to get right, is about the person and work of Jesus. Now, notice this last verse just again. Let me show you something interesting. This is, in many of your translations, it's kind of formatted a little differently. You notice that? Some things are indented and some things aren't. And that's because this, these last uh, six lines, which are actually coupled together in different ways, there was a hymn of the church. And it was probably sung at, when the church all gathered together. It was probably sung a cappella in some way, and we're not sure how the tune went. I'd asked Marty earlier, I said, Marty, you think you could find a tune for us that might you know, resemble that time period? We could sing it, and he said... No, I can't do that. And we got to laugh. But he did teach me some things about this type of song and the time period here. This was probably sung in what they call plain song, which, if I'm not mistaken, I might chop up this music theory here, so forgive me. But plain song was a somewhat of a, of, a, of a type of music that had strong unison flow to it. It may have divided at different times, but it had somewhat of a chanty feel as well. And often the church would gather and they would just sing this mostly in unison, and it would state their beliefs. Now notice these six lines, they're in couplets. Um, the first one, of course, he appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit. See that? And notice the contrast. There seems to be a earthly contrasted with the heavenly in each of these couplets. Look at this, body, spirit. Look at the next two. Was seen by angels, but was preached among the nations. There's the earthly, heavenly, uh, heavenly again. And then was believed on in the world, but taken up into glory. So here is this early church hymn full of doctrine about Jesus. And that is how Paul uh, summed up the church's role when it comes to, to conducting itself. You've got to hold up the truth. You're a pillar. Your life is a pillar that says, listen, Jesus is real. It's truth. And you can believe. Is your life a pillar of truth? Can people look at you and see what you uphold and what you support and say, wow, Jesus must be real? I'm afraid that sometimes too many of us are pillars that hold up the truth with one hand and chip away at it with a hammer in the other hand by our actions of disobedience, by our hypocrisy. The Bible says here that we as as church members, as members of the body of Christ, are pillars of the truth. Church, we're to live in a way that when people see how we act, they know that the truth of Jesus is real. Now let me kind of restate this for you in a couple of numerical points. And then I'll take some questions, okay? First of all, here, here's what this text is teaching me, and I just want to share it with you. First of all, my conduct is tied to whose I am. And remember, the whole key point here, the key word is the word conduct. How do we behave? How do church members really act when they get together? Well, I think one of the main themes and threads in these verses is whose we are. We are God's household. Paul says you are the living God's church. We belong to Him. Listen very carefully. This is not my church. I know people say that sometimes, and they just mean like where you work. But I usually will always respond to that and say, well, first of all, it's not my church. 
But folks will say, well, how's your church going? I don't know how my church is going because I don't have a church. But the church where I minister, the people of God who let me pastor them, it's his church, amen? Then I'll tell them how we're doing. But it's funny how our language betrays true doctrinal beliefs sometimes. It's not my church. You know why? I didn't buy it. You know who did buy it? Jesus Christ with his own blood. Now let's just be really authentic here. I love you guys. I'm not sure I love you enough of my own blood yet, though. I love to sit up here and be real pompous and say, oh, I die for you. But the truth is, if you said, Todd, would you give your blood for this church? I'd be thinking of five people that really need me right now. Are you with me? You probably aren't in those five. They're, their last name is same as my last name right now, Styles. So I'd love to sit here and be some superstar pastor. But right now, the truth is, uh, that, think about it. Jesus Christ gave his blood for the church. So guess who owns the church? Jesus. Guess who owns you? Jesus. Look at Acts twenty twenty eight. In case you're thinking, well, Todd, you're just capitalizing on the moment. You're saying things. I'm not sure I even believe that. Acts 20, 28 is an awesome verse, and our elders really use this verse a lot when we meet and pray. It's a good summary capsule of, of our responsibility not to be overseers with the wrong attitude, but to understand who really owns this church and what our job actually is. We're just overseers. We're under-shepherds. Acts 20, 28 says this, and by the way, this is Paul to the Ephesian elders. He said this to the, to the men who were leading the church that we're looking at in, in 1 Timothy. He said this, Acts 20, 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And by the way, the word God there is interesting because... If you were to say to someone, well, who died on the cross? Jesus. But here this verse is that God bought it with his own blood, which is a, an awesome way for the writer here of Acts, which is Luke, to say Jesus is God. Amen? When Jesus died and shed his blood, it was God dying, shedding his blood. Guess who owns the church? God slash Jesus. He's the head of it. You belong to God. That affects our conduct. You see, all that affects this word in First Timothy 3. How should people conduct themselves? How should they live? What kind of pattern of lifestyle should they have? One that represents who owns them. So you know who calls the shots? Jesus. And he calls the shots for you and he calls the shots for me. Is your life lived in such a way that people know that you are owned by God? Or is God just like an appendage to your life? And people think, well, God's a part of your life. Or do people know, wow, God owns that dude. God owns that dudette. I mean, man, they, they are owned by Jesus. Yeah. Now remember, God owns you by creation. And then he also owns you by salvation the minute you believe. God owns those who believe twice. That's a pretty... Tight contract, isn't it? We belong to him. That should affect our conduct. But he goes to another theme here real quickly. It says here that we also are the pillar and foundation of the truth. It seems to speak not only of whose we are, but what we do. 
We hold up the truth. I think this really speaks to our behavior. How we live in front of those who wonder whose we are. And don't disconnect these two. How do people know to whom you belong? By how you act. I've heard people say to me sometimes, you must be a Stiles, referring to my father. And how I act and how I look and certain things that I do, they're like, especially back in Tennessee when we visit, they'll say, man, I can tell you're a Stiles. Sometimes I'm sure my son gets that from you guys. I'm, I can tell you're a Stiles. You know what they're saying? They're saying the family genes are pretty strong. We can tell whose you are by how you act. Hallelujah in the spiritual realm when people say, wow, you're acting like, a, like Jesus a lot. You must belong to God. Thank you very much. Move on. Amen. I mean, people should be able to see by how we act that we belong to Him. That's holding up the truth. So when things get tough in your marriage, you don't walk out, you hang in there. Because that's what family members in the house of God do. We hold to the truth and we stick it out, we hang in there. When someone gets mad and yells, you answer with a soft word because a soft answer turns away wrath, Proverbs says. Are you with me? Because that's what you do. That's how you live like Jesus. When there's a problem with you and someone else and it lingers, you go to them one-on-one before you call your friend on the phone and talk about it. You go to them one-on-one you say, listen, can we work this out? I love you and the Lord and we're brothers or we're sisters. We can, we can do better than this. You work it out. In other words, you live in a way that's consistent with the truth you're holding up. In fact, let me show you an interesting verse that relates to this. Turn back to Ephesians very quickly, would you? Ephesians, I just want to show you one simple verse that, that resonates with this concept of holding up the truth so that people can tell by what we do that we really are who we say. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Are you there? Ephesians 4, 1. Paul says here, As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Do you see the word live and calling? In other words, one seems to have a a behavioral aspect, one seems to have a, a verbal aspect. You've received this calling. Someone said, hey, you're Christians. God's called us by His name. Christians. And Paul says here, live a life that is worthy of that calling. Let your talk and your walk match. Amen? That's no different than what he says in First Timothy 3. God owns us. Let's live a life that supports that truth. The truth about Jesus and who he was and what he did. So two themes in this passage. Whose we are. That affects how we conduct ourselves in the house of God. And then what we do. That affects uh, and is tied to how I conduct myself in the house of God. Taken from this passage in First Timothy 3. Before I make some final applications and closing comments, are there any questions about this text or this topic related to the church or anything at all you might have for a few moments? Any questions, and feel free to ask. Don't feel intimidated or, or weird about it. We've been doing this most of the summer, and we're working this in as well this fall in some different ways. We had none in the first service, but don't feel afraid to ask a question if you have one. Anyone at all? Okay. Well, great. If you do, feel free afterwards even to stop by. You can chat, or you can use your card and reveal it out, and we'll uh, be sure to answer that way in a more personal way as well. Let's make uh, some last-minute closing applications here. Okay, let me put it in a single sentence for you. Let me just kind of sum this up for you. 
if you really want to know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, as Paul said here, and this whole letter is written to that extent, he kind of gives us a peek into really what that's like in a nutshell by talking about Jesus a lot in these verses. He bought the church. He's the central truth of the church. I mean, Jesus is the core element of church. And by that, I don't mean the institution. I mean the people, right? Jesus is central to everything we do. So it only makes sense to say this. I am most in line with biblical conduct when Jesus is the template for what I think, say, or do. In fact, would you say that with me? Here we go. Ready? I am most in line with biblical conduct when Jesus is the template for what I think, say, or do. Now, I know where you're going right now. Some of you have already thought of four letters. You thought of W, W, J, D. You thought about those letters. But you know what? At the risk of using an, a phrase that's had a shelf life that's probably done by now, let me take you back before that phrase to where it really got its birth. Because the question is worth asking. If Jesus Christ really is the template of, of, of what we think, say, or do, if he bought us and he's the central core of our truth, if it's really all about him, then it would be okay to ask, what would Jesus do? But that phrase has been commercialized and overused, so sometimes we just see it now as a bracelet or a bumper sticker, don't we? You know, the original phrase, what would Jesus do, came from an author named Charles Sheldon, who decades ago wrote a classic novel called In His Steps. Who here has read the book In His Steps? Raise your hand. Very few of you. He uh, actually began the whole thought process of what would Jesus do. And in the book, uh, the novel describes a church gathering, and somewhere in that church gathering, a a man who was coming out of a drunken stupor with great needs and probably homeless kind of stumbles in and the church is caught off guard and, and the pastor of the church is watching and he's thinking, what do I do? And there are stares and there are glares and no one knows, no one knows what to do. And So I think they kind of abruptly end and he's kind of in the aisle asking questions and he's just in the natural world a disruption. Well, church ends and all week long it's the talk of the church. Did you see that guy barge in? What do you think is going on? Why did he ask us those questions? Why couldn't he find a seat? And the pastor is just, uh, he's kind of like, man, what's going on here? And he, he starts asking himself, why did we respond that way? Why, why didn't we know what to do? What, what's, what's going on here? And he begins to ask himself, well, what, I wonder what Jesus would do. So the next Sunday, he brings this to his church. And the point of the novel is that as the pastor unfolds to his church, this crucial question what would you just do? We'll probably not be in the church like we need to be. He begins to engage his church in, a, in several weeks of asking this question no matter what they do. Now listen very carefully. In the original novel, it wasn't an individualistic, commercialized slogan. Are you with me? It was a question that was asked, yes, by individuals, but in a larger community of believers because they knew how I'm living is part of a larger group called the family of God. And it should support the truth that we belong to Christ, that his, his life affects how we live. And so the teachers and the lawyers and the housewives and the moms and the dads, the mechanics, the shop workers, they all begin to ask before every action. This is what the novel teaches. What would Jesus do? And little by little, as the story unfolds, you see a whole town being changed. Because a church, not just individuals who were at some bookstore and bought a bracelet, but because a church 
was willing to ask themselves before every action, what would Jesus do? And the story just lays out how relationships changed. How husbands and wives reconciled when they stopped battling based on human practice and began to sacrificially love one another like Jesus. When folks learned to say, you know, I'm sorry for what I did. I was wrong. And then the other person learned to say, I forgive and will forget it. When young people learn to obey their parents in the Lord. When fathers learn not to provoke their children to wrath, but to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Yes, it's training, but training with a calm spirit. When employers learn to treat their employees well. When employees learn to work as unto the Lord and not unto men. You see what I'm saying? A whole town in this book, in this text, was changed. When every single person asked themselves, what would Jesus do? And the church at large, the family of God, experienced the change in conduct that was tied to knowing whose they were and what they were to do. And all of their actions began to model the truth that they embraced. You know, it might be wise for us to embrace a fresh perspective on those four letters. You with me? Maybe take WWJD off your wrist off the back of your window and maybe take First Timothy 3 and say, man, if Jesus Christ is the central figure of the church, he owns us, it's his truth that we embrace and sing and teach, man, let's take those letters and let's put them in our hearts. And this week, let's ask, Lord, what, what would you do? Because you know what? That's how we hold up the truth of Jesus. We live like him. Will you live like Jesus this week? Just a simple question I want to ask you. Now, I'm sure you're saying, yes, Todd, I will. Well, don't give me the answer. Give your answer to the one who owns the church. Give your answer to the one who owns you. And will you live like Jesus for the next seven days? And will you let your life be a pillar of truth? And when folks look at you and say, wow, Rich, man, I can tell you belong to God. They're seeing a structure above your head that says the truth of Jesus. And Rich just holds it up and says, thank you. And he moves on. His life just exemplifies the truth he believes. He's a pillar. He knows who he belongs to. He knows what his role is. You put that together with six, seven hundred people. Can you imagine how Ankeny could be impacted? Urbandale, Johnston, Altoona. The different surrounding areas. Imagine how they could be impacted when all of us see our roles as pillars. We're holding up the truth by our lives. Then your employer or your employees will see you not as big bad wolf, but as a servant of Jesus Christ. Actually, as a bond slave of Jesus. That's all we are, amen? We're slaves of the master. He makes the calls. He owns us and we serve him. Hey, church, this week... Let's live as pillars. Let's let our conduct be, be really affected by whose we are and what we do. And as people watch us, may they see God's truth fleshed out.
That's the church's conduct laid out in these simple three verses. And it all centers on Jesus. What do you say we live like Jesus? Let the world see the church of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray this morning.